Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and an audio journey that will take us from the origins of hummus to an exhibition press release created via artificial intelligence. Harriet Nussbaum is the writer whose new book charts the longer-than-you-might-even-imagine history of chickpeas and tahini dishes, and artist Adam Gibney's latest exhibition features that press release. Also, a little bit later, we'll go on a journey into flute, and Ashlyn Kelleher addresses the knotty problem of how Spotify slices its money pie. But we begin with a different sort of pie. Raspberry Pis and Arduino DIY computers, humidity sensors, buzzers, bells and microphones. These are all the raw materials in the work of Dublin artist Adam Gibney. A sculptor by training, he's since moved ever further into the world of maker culture, using cheap, hackable electronic components to create kinetic works that gather information from the world around them. For his work in a school in Rush County, Dublin, crop sensors control the combination of syllables broadcast in the building throughout the day, while in his later show, Can You Breathe For Me?, cameras and sensors of all sorts constantly check the gallery environment, responding with flashes, dings, or in one case looking up a soothing clip on YouTube. He's even used an AI to create the ArtSpeak press release for the show. Culturefile went to meet Adam Gibney at the show and add some environmental stimulus. Inhale vitality, exhale expansion. Do you tell me one more time what's happening there when you clap? When a certain volume threshold is hit, um, the algorithm goes onto YouTube and searches for guided meditations. And then within that, it, it's searching for the word exhale. And once it finds that, it isolates the clip and then it plays it back on, on both the, the screen and the through the speakers does it really quickly yeah it's quite it's kind of surprising how how fast it can happen um yeah it's, it's a lot faster than we are <laughs> this one you have um the it started with the humidity sensor so there's kind of live data of of the humidity of the room my name is uh, adam gibney and um, um, we're in the una young gallery and then i kind of created this like like self-calibrating system so as the humidity of the room goes up and down, the system kind of creates this like breathing light, this like, I suppose, experience circuit of sorts. I suppose when I started playing with these ideas, the approach was very kind of um, DIY maker and messy. And I really wanted the work to sit as in this could be a scientific kind of testing space. I was really trying to look at like industrial design or product design, and these are actual instruments or tools as opposed to to artworks maybe you have a couple of different ones here so there's these um raspberry pies which are kind of microcomputers. then there's like arduinos which are more basic microcontrollers then you've got amps like kind of radio devices sensors yeah quite a, a mixture of different things depending on each each piece i specialize in sculpture but I was always kind of interrogating technology or it's kind of how it mediates our reality or different value systems. So it just seemed like a natural progression to like really get your hands on technology and start to, to play around with different kind of situations or scenarios. I suppose what I find really exciting about something like a Raspberry Pi or 
um, an Arduino or how I've made any of the kind of parts which were 3D printed. Uh, there was laser cut stuff. I've learned all of this online through like maker movements and, and through um, sharing of ideas. Um, so if I tried to make this work, I think 20, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to. I would have needed a computer scientist. I would have needed someone with a laser machine, access to 3D printers. Whereas now I can just like kind of learn off everyone online and teach myself as I need to go. So what do you got there? Uh, so I'm holding the press release uh, for the exhibition. So it appears to be quite the, the same as most press releases. On, on the left-hand side, you have a description of the show and then to the right, a list of the artworks. But on this one, what I'm hoping is people notice that at the bottom of, of the press release, um, I've included that it was generated at a certain time and date and that the authors was both myself and GPT-2 and then in brackets AI text gen, which is a very specific kind of iteration. This one's actually really uh, a fun one to play around with. So uh, this one has been pre-trained on just a, a, a huge glut of kind of information or like, uh, I think it's different academic texts, books, like it's quite a large, what they call like a corpus. And then what I did, though, was I fed it very specific lines to start a conversation, which were very much from the kind of art language or art speak to see what kind of conversation we could begin. Okay, so, so what, as an example, what, what, did you, what did you first input to it? In this case, I can show you, it's like um, the first sentence was uh, for his exhibition, Can You Breathe For Me? In the Union Gallery, Adam Gibney will exhibit a series of technological and algorithmic assemblages. And from that, um, it started to generate text. So what did it produce in response to that then? Is that the next line of the release? Yes. So the next line is, um, he will look at the technological elements that bring forth the sonic universe a modern all-digital world where a person who is a computer can do something with a computer and be able to do something with his or her brain. <laughs> I, I'm feeling that. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I thought it was, like, it's really humorous, which I like. Uh, it's really, like... Some of the, the sentences, I mean, that it outputs are quite, either very, like, comical, humorous. Some of them actually... I got ideas from as well. So it, it is a, like, as a mode of making, it's quite interesting, I think. What you're talking about there in the release is, is working very collaborative with the AI, which is perhaps like a more, um, a more practical use for it than the idea that, that you know, that it, it would write, the AI would write a novel or the AI would create an exhibition. But it, it becomes a screwdriver in itself. The works present themselves. Yeah, I, I find that like approach really kind of, interesting or fun because when you read something that the AI has output that will give you an idea and then you can reply or respond so it's a lot more fruitful than just doing like a prompt and waiting there's this kind of exchange that occurs between you and this kind of AI or data set there's no scientific approach to the world as it is and there's no new way to the world as it is there's rather a new way of producing and consuming knowledge Adam Gibney and assistants there, and Can You Breathe For Me is at the Una Young Gallery, Dublin, and you can see here the artist's latest installation for the Glucksman at University College Cork.
Now, do you know where your hummus is? Because next on the Culture File Weekly, we have the global history of the world's favourite dip. Harriet Nussbaum is a Hebrew and Arabic scholar and food writer whose studies and travels in the Middle East and the Levant brought her into contact with the long, intricate history of hummus, from its early Christian roots to the 40 shades of hummus now taking up space in supermarkets around the globe. She's brought her research together in a new book, Hummus, A Global History, and she talked to Culturefile about the beige gold, beginning, as we must, with her own encounters with the Ur hummus. One that really stands out for me is uh, a Lebanese restaurant that I used to go to in Cairo, when I was living in Cairo, in the area of Garden City, that had really, really fantastic hummus. And that was that restaurant was one of my culinary highlights of living in Egypt and um, I often think of how delicious their hummus and their other dishes were so that's the one that stands out for me. I think it was just for me what a perfect hummus is which is very smooth, creamy, quite lemony but not too garlicky. That's how I, that's my perfect hummus anyway with a little bit less garlic and uh, yeah very smooth. I started off studying Arabic and Hebrew um, as an undergraduate and became very interested in um, the history of the Near and Middle East and also in the food. Gradually those two worlds started to combine for me, focusing on food in the time of Jesus and the area where Jesus was living. One of the things that you point out in the in the spread of hummus was the the way it sort of sidestepped the food restrictions of lots of different religions. Yeah, that's right, exactly, because it's a food that's made from entirely um, vegan ingredients. Let's say you've just got chickpeas, tahini, lemon and garlic. It's something that everyone can eat in the region, regardless of any religious um, dietary restrictions. There's even a theory that the food historian Charles Perry put forward that the earliest kind of combinations of chickpeas and tahini may have come about by... Christian cooks who were looking to replace meat during their Lenten fast and therefore added tahini to chickpeas instead of adding it to meat as they would ordinarily have done. So tahini would have been used perhaps as a as a sauce for meat, as a, as a way of flavouring it. So perhaps not cooked together, but once the meat had been cooked, it might have been used as a sauce. So instead of av- adding a tahini sauce to meat they might have added it to chickpeas but not necessarily to mashed ones or crushed ones so it may have looked like quite a different kind of dish but it may be one of the early combinations that starts to resemble hummus. We have three Arabic cookery manuals from the 13th and 14th centuries that show us that chickpeas and tahini were being combined in dishes in which the chickpeas were being crushed and mashed and mixed with tahini, uh, with lemon, but then with lots of other ingredients that we wouldn't recognise in hummus today. So when anything was written down in terms of cookbooks, it was about the luxury dishes. So those are the ones that we, that we know about today. So we have one recipe for a dish called hummus kissa or kassa, depending on which text you look at. It has different names uh, in different texts. But that combines chickpeas with uh, tahini, with lemon, preserved lemon, and then with spices like um, coriander, cinnamon. It was garnished with 
with chickpeas as hummus might be today, but it was also garnished with things like pistachios and cinnamon and all kinds of um, additional ingredients. And it was also made much, much thicker. We know that the consistency was designed to be more like a kind of pate, very solid so that you could cut it and spread it onto bread. So it's quite different from the hummus that we eat today, but it certainly has some of the, the fundamental characteristics, having the crushed uh, chickpeas and the tahini and, and having that combination. So it sort of shows us a very beginning of hummus, I suppose. We think that the kind of hummus that we um, know and eat today emerged around about the 18th century in Damascus or Beirut, which were both cities in the Ottoman Empire at that time. It was a kind of sophisticated urban dish rather than being the kind of food that might have come from the countryside. It looked like something that would have been served at banquets in cities like Beirut or Damascus. Um, because it has this very elaborate way of being served, being whipped against the edges of this small red clay bowl so that all the hummus is kind of smoothed out around the sides, leaving a hollow into the middle into which you can drizzle olive oil. And, and it's still served like this today. This is how we, we see hummus served traditionally today. So this kind of hummus, we believe, came, came onto the stage in around the 18th century. We can look at... Um, writers like Claudia Rodin and Elizabeth David as well, who, um, of course, brought hummus to, to the first English-language cookbook in the 1950s, even. So certainly there was some introduction through food writing. I think there was also some introduction through um, perhaps people beginning to taste hummus in, say, Cypriot restaurants or Lebanese restaurants. Um, but I think, really, it didn't become... Um, popular on any major scale until it started to be made and produced and sold by supermarkets. So that's the late 80s or even the beginning of the 90s. Um, so I think what's really taken the West by storm is this, these pots of supermarket hummus that become more like a snack food, um, obviously are available in lots of different flavours, um, and, yeah, have really taken on a different role from the one that they have back in the Levant. It's, it's a different kind of food. It's used as a different kind of food. For the book, I decided to include one sweet recipe as a nod to the full circle of hummus. In the recipes, I go from the medieval period through the classic hummus, Musabha, uh, which is like a kind of warm, deconstructed hummus where lots of the chickpeas are left whole and the tahini is more like a kind of um, sauce for the chickpeas. So perhaps a bit more like the Lenten dish that we talked about before. And then I go to a, a flavoured hummus with um, squash and nigella seeds and then to a sweet hummus just to kind of show the full circle. So I experimented when I was creating that recipe and um, the one that I designed contains maple syrup and lemon zest and cashew butter. And it, I really found it tasted like a vegan cheesecake at the end. So I, I suggested putting it onto a kind of a, a sweet biscuit or something. So you had a, a biscuit base and then topping it with raspberries or, or some kind of fruit. But um, my testers are mostly two small children. So if it's sweet, they'll probably try it. <laughs>
Harriet Nussbaum there, and Hummus, a global history, is out now from Reaction Books. Now, these past months have found some impressively varied ways to remix the world and deliver odd versions of life events. It's happened in every area, from births to funerals, but also, of course, in music. When Sylvia Stervavichuta won her new role as principal flute with the RTE Concert Orchestra, she hardly expected to spend the early months of her tenure not in the concert hall or rehearsing with friends, but sitting at home in front of her computer, recording to a track, but that's how it turned out in this most unsettling of musical starts, free now from her apartment and her click tracks, and back meeting and rehearsing in the same room as her orchestra colleagues, she talked to Culturefile about the family business of the flute. I chose the flute because my mom is a flute player. My mom's name is Loretta Szczerbavicina. She has a slightly different end to her surname because she's married uh, to my dad. That's how Lithuanian surnames work. And she's the principal flute of the Lithuanian Opera and Ballet Theatre. I grew up listening to her practicing and in operas and ballets, and I absolutely loved her sound. I still do. So she was a great inspiration to me as a human being as well as as an artist. She has a sweet tone, so much expression and heart. Such a pure, beautiful sound that carries over the whole orchestra. So she really um, set it, uh, the, so we call it embouchure, the way you place your lips on the flute and the way you blow into the flute. Uh, it's called embouchure. And so she explained it to me very well the very first time. And I think I, yeah, I definitely am grateful for that because I think a good start is really important. You develop lots of habits from that. She, su- she suggested to think of smiling. So <laughs> if you smile and you put your lips together and then blow across the flute, you should get a sound. And I managed to get a nice sound uh, with her help and I stuck with it. The first uh, gig back was the Flute and Harp Concerto by Mozart. So yes, that was the first time I saw everyone because it involved a normal size orchestra. And it was just joyful. It was so wonderful to see the people uh, I've been longing to see for so many months. And everyone was playing out and enjoying the beautiful tunes, the music, making, yeah, making that magical sound together, you know. For me, it was the most wonderful welcome into the orchestra, you know, to, to have this wonderful opportunity to do a solo concerto in the first six months of me being in the job is, is such a treat. I do love flute repertoire, and there are lots of uh, pieces I haven't yet played that I would love to play. One of them is the Martinus Sonata. There's a beautiful recording of the Martinus Sonata by Mark Sparks, uh, who is a flute player from the U.S. I had him as a teacher when I went to Aspen Music Festival in school, and he was of great inspiration to me. This was in summer 2016. I often go back to that and some of other his of his recordings for inspiration of of beautiful playing. It's so emotional and so free, and he plays out... I I love his tone. I just love the way he phrases. I have have a lot of flute players that I like, actually. um, I love... Obviously, I love my teachers playing. Michael Cox is absolutely phenomenal. He's the principal flute of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, so he's always going to remain a great inspiration to me. 
they are from different countries, so there is slightly different style. Mark plays, I guess, in the more American style. Michael plays in the British style. But actually, I think they're quite similar. They sing through the flute. You know, they 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 don't just sound like flute players. They 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 sound like vocalists even, and I find that really inspiring. I never wanted to play just like a flute player. <laughs> I don't know how to say like how to explain that, but I just I didn't want to just play the flute well. I wanted to make sure that I overcome whatever difficulties the instrument presents and sound like I'm really singing through the flute. As if it would be my voice. Yeah, that's what I worked on. Flautist Sylvia Sturbavicuta there, and you can hear her in action in the Mozart Concert for Flute and Harp with Geraldine O'Doherty Harp if you check out the Lyric Concert page on the Lyric site. And Sylvia will be live in a Halloween afternoon concert with the RTE Concert Orchestra on, well, Halloween. And finally this time on the Culture File Weekly, some more pie. The musician and writer Damon Krakowski recently wrote about some rummaging he'd been doing in the gubbins of Spotify to better understand how the streaming service pays artists. Musicians and composers on Twitter, too, periodically ask, fairly rhetorically, fairly angrily, the same sort of questions. Why does my small but perfectly formed streaming fan base add up to so little income? The answer is complicated and involves terms like pro rata and user-centric but also unfair and fake and pie. At least it did when I asked Culture Files regular tech soothsayer Professor Ashling Kelleher to help me understand. When we think of streaming services and the new world of, of music supply, we think that when we play a song on the internet nicely and happily, a share of money to pay for that stream is going to the artist. But in fact, the models of the streaming companies are a little bit more complicated than that. A little bit more complicated. I think um, I'll use an analogy of a pie to get through this. For example, Spotify, they use a, a type of model called pro rata. So that basically means that you get a fraction of the pie and there's only one pie. So there's one pie that covers everything that has been streamed that month for example. And so then they look at, okay, so Ariana Grande got 150 million streams and Drake got X and, you know, so-and-so got Y. And you got maybe, you know, 50 streams. So you're like, okay, that's great. I should get, you know, the equivalent of what, you know, 50 listens is. But unfortunately, that your, your 50 is translated into is a teeny, tiny, tiny minuscule fraction of that same pie. And somebody who has the most listens, if 30% of the people listen to Drake, he gets 30% of that pie. And it gets really, really small as we go down to the under, other 100,000 people on it. My understanding was that when I listen to, you know, if, if like if there's an artist who gets 10,000 streams, I'm like, they make him a pie worth that. And he gets his own <laughs> nice pie all to himself. And so I was like very feel misled. Um, to really like hammer home my pie analogy here about the types of pies that Spotify was making for artists. This other type of pie is the user-centric pie. That's what they're calling that, isn't it? And and, and that's not... Uh, I mean, to explain that to us a little bit, what's what would be that ideal little pie? Well, that pie, this authentic, homemade... <laughs> artisanal. <laughs> artisan, artisan pie. It's, it's, uh, yeah, very hipster. But basically the idea with this is that you get, you know, it's very much kind of like fan driven. If somebody listens to it to you, you get 
whatever that fan is using to kind of monetarily access the feed. So if the fan is a subscriber, if the fan is using the ad-driven model for that particular stream, you get that portion of that fan's input, uh, kind of financial input to Spotify. That seems very fair, right? You're kind of, the the money is kind of moving exactly from me to Spotify, to the artist. And I like, that's the kind of model. I, I don't like the idea of, you know, we're all just paying into this kind of massive group pot that is then divvied up where there are some really big fractions and there are some really, really, really tiny fractions. And to prove that that is slightly a dodgy approach, somebody has found the way to game that particular slightly crazy system. The Robin Hood of Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the Robin Hood of Spotify? He's a Dutch DJ, Steve Voigt, and he's certainly the Robin Hood. And he's kind of hit upon this very clever idea of creating something that has become very popular and even more so during the pandemic of creating ambient kind of sleep music to help you sleep at nighttime. These snippets, maybe about 30, 31 seconds total, which is the minimum that you're allowed to put up on Spotify and still monetize. And what he has done and why all of a sudden is now, you know, gaining more listenerships, like 50 million a week, which is an equivalent to somebody like Lady Gaga. How is, how is this possibly happening? Well, he claims to have spent, through his company in marketing, an eight-figure sum. The thing that's happened there, of course, is like when we're talking about marketing, we are talking about the new world of marketing. He's not putting up billboards on the side of the motorway. No, I'm sure there's all sorts of, you know, using social media, using all sorts of digital uh, tricks on your cell phone as well. Anything really to get it, maybe bots even, uh, farming this out to many, many uh, bots to create kind of uh, false or fraudulent clicks, anything to get those numbers up. And that actually makes sense in this case because of the way Spotify is set up, because of the way it shares out its money. It makes financial sense to buy clicks, buy streams on your own songs, and via that you will actually earn money from Spotify. Absolutely. And especially if you have the capital up front in a recent report that the British government drew up in response to the hashtag broken record um, kind of campaign that's been running, which is really trying to interrogate and look at at the unfairness uh, of these um, streaming uh, financial models and incentives, where the slice of the pie that's left for people who don't get millions of clicks a day is, is just not worth it. So in that report, one of the um, former uh, kind of top executives at Spotify, kind of in a bit of a throwaway remark, talks about that, oh, it'd be very hard to administer and the computer processing power it would take, you know, to do all, you know, kind of keep track of this on an individual level is just too much, which, you know, that's kind of seems a bit like a red herring. They just don't want to do that because they still make the same amount of money. So I think it's really up to artists, like you said, with this these broken record campaigns and others to try and get regulators and legislators to create a more level playing field. It happened in 1991 that this was sort of reformed in the old-fashioned world of radios and and bricks and mortar stores to try and kind of sort out what was going wrong then. Huge record labels and huge artists were obviously going to get um, more promotion and people suggest that they were selling more and it wasn't necessarily true and all of that was to the detriment of uh, smaller artists and, and probably of music in general. Yes, but not even only of smaller artists, but genres that wouldn't typically weren't being counted. So this was very pop, or, you know, the billboards were very pop oriented at the time. So things like metal music, heavy metal, even country music stars weren't seeing themselves up there because they were considered niche or genre or weren't worthy of being pushed for radio play. So I think we did see a change in, in, in 91. And I think this is where the broken record campaign is really pushing forward, that if I, as a fan, 
sit and listen, you know, or stream an album by an artist, that that revenue should go directly to them. Are there any streaming services which are looking at this and trying to do to work with a user-centric model? I mean, SoundCloud, I suppose, are, are doing better. Well, no, SoundCloud are experimenting, but I don't know if they're going to change. So, for example, in July of earlier this year, they did uh, an experiment with the group Portishead, where they flipped over from uh, Portishead have a cover of ABBA's song SOS, and they put that up on SoundCloud using a, the different model, using the user-centric model, where every fan that would listen to it, that money would go directly to Portishead. And in this case, Portishead were donating all the proceeds to charity. What they saw over the course of a month, within a month, Portishead had, compared to how the song had done previously, made almost six times the previous revenue. It's almost as if the vast unaccountable power of the tech platforms isn't making the world a better place, Ashling. Don't say that, Luke. You, you, just, you just can't say that. I didn't get into my closet to hear stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Push a positivity, please. <laughs> Ashling Kelleher there, yes, from her closet in Studio City. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Pies to Slice next Saturday at 6.30pm or a little bit earlier if you're keen and a podcast subscriber. Till then, bye now. <laughs>